apologies to Cameron here for uh, throwing in with that psalm. That was psalm from last week was in our order of service and uh, hadn't been updated, so apologies for that. Um, let's turn now to the end part of chapter 15 of Exodus. Exodus 15, and from verse 22 to verse 27, where the Israelites grumble at the waters of Marah. Don't know if any of you have read Bill Bryson's book, Notes from a Small Island. Uh, there's quite a famous part in the book uh, where he, he mentions what it is he likes about Britain. And his response is, uh, every last bit of it, good and bad, Marmite, village fets, country lanes, people saying mustn't grumble. And I'm terribly sorry, but. Uh, that's... That bit about um, mustn't grumble uh, has always stuck out for me. Uh, You come across people uh, all over the place who are quick to police any hint of complaint being made. Um, I remember uh, the lady in the post office in uh, our part of Sky who would respond to the slightest negative sound uh, about the weather with a gleeful rebuke. Well, we mustn't complain, we mustn't complain. And you felt duly chastened. Uh, but with Sky's weather, it was quite, quite something to uh, not be negative all was about the weather. We regard grumbling as one of the lesser sins. Uh, we don't uh, see grumbling as being uh, up there in the Premier League of sins, along with viewing internet pornography or cheating on the taxman. Uh, sometimes we, we speak of grumbling in a way that kind of lets us off the hook. Well, you know, I'm a bit of a grumbler. We don't think it matters all that much. But grumbling, as we see, is a serious sin. It's a sin that the, the Israelites were prone to. It was a condition which in some ways characterized their behavior uh, in the desert wanderings. It's a sin that led them to come under God's judgment. Now, we said a few weeks ago that when we are studying the book of Exodus, uh, yes, it is a book which is a historical book, and it's telling us of the unfolding of the story of redemption, how God's plan to send a saviour is moving forward. But we're also justified in looking at it and gleaning from it lessons uh, to adjust our behavior, moral lessons. Some people are a bit nervous about doing that with the Bible, especially narrative parts of the Bible. But the Bible itself tells us that that's how uh, we are to approach, or at least that's one way by which we can approach it. First Corinthians 10, uh, Paul has been speaking about the fact that the Israelites came through the Red Sea, traveled to the desert, and he says, now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. So, as well as telling us uh, of the, the moving forward of the plan of redemption, it's also giving us uh, warnings and positive examples. And one helpful way of thinking about how these apply is to remind ourselves that the people uh, of Israel are redeemed. They are a redeemed people. The um, prelude to the Ten Commandments uh, reminds them that the law is not being given as a way of attaining acceptance. It's a way of responding to 
their redemption. Uh, in the Song of the Sea, twice Moses sings of the fact that God redeemed a people or bought a people. So these are people, if we want to use our New Covenant terminology, they're saved people and they have to be sanctified. How are they going to be sanctified? They're going to be sanctified through the testings of the desert. God has lessons to teach the Israelites. This is the university of the desert in which they are traveling. Uh, We've got insight into God's purposes in Deuteronomy. We read, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble you and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. That's actually crucial in what we're at tonight. Uh, God's purpose is to test you and to know what was in your heart. That's what's going on here at the waters of Mara. God is testing that he might know what is in their heart. And that the people might know what is in their heart. We sometimes think that the 40 years of the desert was a punishment. And that was it. End of story. And to some extent that's true. They would have got there much quicker had they not been rebellious and hard-hearted. But it was also a time of blessing. It was a time uh, of fatherly care. Deuteronomy 1, 31. There in the desert you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son. All the way you went until you reached this place. So there are these very positive uh, images of how God regarded the time in the desert with his people. Even uh, a romantic image. uh, God wooing his people, alluring his people into the desert. Hosea 2.14. Therefore... I am going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. God is wooing Israel to himself. So, there are some fundamental lessons in this portion here as to how we grow as Christians, how especially we treat um, situations of adversity in our lives. Uh, those of you ladies, of course, who were at the, uh, the meeting in Cumbernauld and heard Helen Thorne uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, will pick up on some of the things we're going to, to, to speak on tonight. Uh, she spoke, I think, uh, I wasn't there, but I, I presume she spoke about uh, the idea of situations we meet being heat that we respond to. And either we respond to them by putting down roots into Christ and becoming fruitful, or we respond as thorn bushes and become prickly and unproductive. And we're going to see that. This is a working example of that, uh, that understanding of the dynamics of the Christian life here in this passage. So first of all, we see the heat, which is actually uh, a situation of dehydration. It really is heat. Uh, it's physical heat. They're really thirsty. They're parched and they face with disappointment. And then we see the heart of the people being uh, exposed, opened up uh, by their response to the heat. They respond with grumbling. At least they do. Moses doesn't. He responds very differently. And then we're going to see how the time at Elam is like a view of the horizon. A view, if you like, of heaven, of the end destination. So, first of all then, uh, there is the matter of the heat. We live in a fallen world. 
There are all kinds of things that we encounter in this world which lead, uh, which re- demand a response from us. We respond to different situations. We either respond in a godly way uh, and we'll be fruitful. Or we respond in an ungodly way. Or we respond with selfishness, self-centeredness. We become like that prickly thorn bush. We live in a world where we're bombarded by marketing hype. Uh, all around us, the world is telling us the kind of things that we need to be happy. We meet with external hardships, things that happen outside us uh, to make life difficult. Broken health, disappointments, sorrows. We're sinned against. People do bad things to us. People abuse us. They misuse our trust. They slander us. They cheat We look out and we see the shortcomings of others, the suffering of others, and we react in different ways to all of these kind of situations. And not just negative situations, but we react to to good things as well that happen in our lives. Opportunities open up. We've got times of blessing in our lives. Everything is going well in the garden of our lives. How we respond to the good times as well as the bad times, reveals the condition of our hearts. And uh, each one of us was probably living, to some extent, in uh, a situation of one of these or the other. There are things that are going on in your life, maybe pretty trivial things. You may be contending with a thumping headache right now, and you have to respond in one way or another to that. Uh, You've had a fallout at work. You've been getting an earful from a neighbour for no uh, real reason. You've been given the offer perhaps of a greater salary if you switch work. None of these things in themselves determine how we're going to behave, how we're going to respond. What is it that determines how we respond? It's our heart, isn't it? It's how we are with God that determines how we respond. And that's why the heat is a test. That's why uh, the Lord in this very passage speaks about uh, the experience of Israel uh, coming to, to, to this point of testing. Uh, sorry, this, this point of, of thirst and disappointment is a test. It's something which is going to reveal uh, what their hearts are like. Same set of circumstances will lead two different people to very different responses. It's not the circumstance in itself that's the issue, it's the heart. I heard Alistair Beck once uh, quote this, this poem, and the, 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 the poetess, if you like, is looking out on, uh, on, on ships sailing by, yachts sailing by, uh, sailing ships, and uh, they're going in all different directions. And yet the wind uh, is going in the one direction. One ship sails east and another west by the self-same winds that blow. Tis the set of the sails and not the gales that tells the way we go. Like the winds of the sea are the waves of time. As we journey along through life, 
It is the set of the soul that determines the goal and not the calm or the strife. It's not our circumstances. It's our heart that determines the way that we go. And the heat here, as we said, was literally heat. They had a three-day journey without water. So let's be as sympathetic as we can to these Israelites. This is hard going. I I don't know. I think you can go about three days uh, without water. And then things become pretty serious. So they had three days in the desert sun without water. And then, hey, they come across uh, the sight of water at Mara. Hoops of joy go up from this huge company of traveling Israelites. They rush forward to slake their thirst, only to find that these wretched waters are undrinkable. They're bitter. They spit the water out and they are utterly frustrated. There is a a horrible sense of disappointment. They've been let down. What do they do? What action will their heart lead to? Before we look at that, we need to say two things about the heat itself, the situation. First of all, God is always in control of our heat situations, those things which test our hearts. They're under his control. God could have taken the Israelites directly to Elam and its springs. God chose not to do that. He chose to bring the people through this three-day dehydration and then the subsequent disappointment at Marah. And there will be further heat situations for them. There will be lack of bread. Uh, There will be another experience of a lack of water. And there will be an unexpected, by, uh, an unexpected attack by some desert dwellers, the Amalekites. Going to test the hearts of the Israelites. And in each case, there's a good purpose behind the heat. God's in control, and God has a good intent behind the heat. He's not bringing them to these conditions of testing so that they can fail, so that he can break them. He has good purposes. Uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 22, Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you. Why? So that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. It's not the heat that leads to the outcome. It's the condition of our hearts that produces the outcome. So let's look at the heart issue now. Two very different responses. Uh, The Israelites respond to the heat in a way that will be characteristic of the Israelites in the desert. They complain. They grumble. So the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? Now, it's interesting that they grumbled against Moses. If they had been less cowardly, they would have made it clear that they were actually grumbling against God. Uh, That's what they were doing. Moses clearly was not divine that uh, he could lead them to sources of water. So they they were actually complaining against God, but they they framed it as a complaint against Moses. That's often what we do, isn't it? In In our grumbling against God, 
when things don't go the way we like them to, we blame our parents or uh, we blame the church or the elders or the minister or whatever, somebody else. But in effect, we're blaming God. We just label uh, it differently. And grumbling is a serious sin. Again, 1 Corinthians 10, uh, 10 verse 10, one of the lessons drawn from the experiences, do not grumble as some of them did. But it would be wrong for us to think that the, the right response to uh, this kind of situation is, is that Bill Bryson type of response. You know, that we go around uh, in the, the stereotypical kind of way, muttering, mustn't grumble, uh, keeping tight-lipped. Because you can be tight-lipped about things. You can, you know, button up your lips and not say anything, but you can be seething with rage inside. You can be really bitter inside, but not give expression to that. So, what is it that is so serious about grumbling? And how does that relate to venting our complaint, if you like, in in a, a more positive way? In the Psalms, for example, the psalmist is very candid about things going wrong in his life and bringing his case before God. And so... Whilst that is, that is fine, that's what we are to do. We're to bring our, our cares and our burdens to the Lord. And we are to have honesty. What we are not to have, and where grumbling comes into it, is we're not to have our relationship with God poisoned. Because we're resentful against God. Because we think God is behaving badly towards us. And we're maligning the character of God. By the way, we, we grumble against him. The Israelites' grumbling revealed the fact that they had a distorted view of God. They thought that God didn't care for them. They had short memories. Only three days ago, they were, uh, they were singing on the beach. They had the tambourines out. They were praising God who had delivered them from Pharaoh and his army. And had done it against all the odds. It was a backs-to-the-wall situation. It was a no-hoper of a situation. And yet God had delivered them. They had seen how God had delivered them in Egypt through the plagues. One of which was the um, making of the, the, the clean waters of the Nile blood and then the restoration again of the same waters. Where had their trust in God's power gone? Where had their view of God as being benevolent, kind, gracious, compassionate? And they also had a distorted view of themselves. They had a sense of entitlement. They thought that they were entitled to complain. Where's the water? God is in the dock. And they are bringing their, their accusation against God. We deserve better than this. It's often our way, isn't it? You know, uh, in our, our complaining against God's providence, uh, if we would only verbalize it, what we'd be saying would be, God is unfair to me. I don't deserve this. I deserve better than this. Really? What would we get if we got what we deserved? We would get judgment. We would have help. Uh, we, we receive mercy. We receive grace. God's grace in place of the 
awfulness of what our rebellion deserves. What we are going through may be bitter, but it need not make us bitter. And the problem at Mara wasn't the bitter water, but was the bitterness of the people's hearts. John Calvin pointed out that God might have given them sweet water to drink at first, but he wished by the bitter to make prominent the bitterness that lurked in their hearts. God was revealing their heart to them through this testing at Mara. Problem wasn't the water. Problem was their heart. Now, they, they complained and grumbled. Moses' reaction is interestingly very different. Moses could have lost it. Moses uh, could have blown his top and you know, we would hardly have blamed him. Uh, but we see him showing his remarkable meekness again. Instead of responding to the people, lay off me. What can I do about it? He responds with meekness and turns to the Lord, brings the situation before God. And he responds with faith and a willingness to do with a willingness to do what God would tell him. And God shows him a piece of wood or a log and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. Many of the medieval commentators uh, read all kinds of meaning into this log. Uh, Many of them saw this as figuring the cross of Christ and how the cross is able to make uh, the bitterness of life sweet. And, you know, that's true, but it's one of these cases of really uh, not having any controls in how we interpret the Bible. Uh, We've got to be careful about what we read into the Bible, and uh, we need to recognize the the places where the Bible uses things symbolically. And There's no real evidence to see that there is a symbolic use of the, the wood or the log here. But the context is that of obeying the law, obeying the decrees of God. That's what uh, Moses goes on uh, to, to account, uh, to, to recount of what God says. Verse 26, if you listen carefully to the choice, to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians. And what's interesting here uh, is that the word show, you know, God showed him a log. The word, the Hebrew word, has got a close connection with the word Torah or law. And it's almost underlining the, the fact of uh, obedience that what we have here is. Uh, God instructing Moses on where to find this log and what to do with it. Moses carefully obeying and the water made drinkable and sweet. So that there's a kind of enacted parable here of believing and obeying. And the Lord is saying, if you will obey my commands, then you will know uh, on your journey, the bitterness of your journey being made sweet by the grace of the Lord our healer. And in this context, God reveals in himself by a new name. 
uh, he reveals himself by the name Yahweh Rophe, the Lord, our healer, the God who heals. And the word is a word that speaks of uh, not just physical healing, but wholeness, soundness of, of body and spirit. The experience there at the waters of Mara was that if God's people will trust God for uh, all things and will obey God in every circumstances, they will prove him to be their healer. So instead of responding to the heat of a situation, <coughs> which was understandably difficult, incredibly difficult, they were on the point of fainting, extremely disappointed. But they could have responded by turning to the Lord and bringing their situation before him in faith and obeying him. And if they will do so in future, the Lord declares that he will be the Lord who heals them. But that healing, of course, is uh, what Francis Schaeffer called significant or uh, substantial healing. All the, all the healing that we, that we will know uh, in this earth is not complete in the sense that our, our healing will be complete when Jesus comes again. Even in Jesus' day, when Jesus healed people who were lame or even who were dead, uh, people then were going to uh, encounter new instances of broken health. All of them would eventually die. Uh, the kingdom of God now is bringing in substantial healing. But we're looking to the day when God comes and brings in a new heaven and a new earth. And all of our journeying has to be done in the light of that destination. The Israelites were on a journey. The Israelites were on a journey to the promised land. They weren't here, there yet. They had been unbalanced, caught off balance by this first test. They hadn't responded well. The, their heart was not right before God. God, in his grace, gives them a glimpse of what lies ahead. Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. Interesting. Once again, we've got to resist the temptation of uh, reading uh, into the detail that's given to us uh, too much. Uh, one of John Buchan's uh, books, uh, Witchwood uh, has a minister in it uh, who, Bucky says, preached for a year and six months on Exodus 15 and 27, the 12 wells of water and the three score and ten palm trees of Elam, a Sabbath to each well and to each tree. And the novel goes on to comment that the minister was never strong in the intellectuals. Uh, he made a big mistake in uh, reading into the detail of what was there uh, so much. I don't think we're far wrong, though, if we see God bringing the people to Elam after the situation at Mara, of God in his grace giving a glimpse of journey's end. You're not there yet, folks, but this is the land you are coming to. He books his people into a 
four-star desert hotel. The destination would be something like Elam. Uh, the scriptures elsewhere speak of a land flowing with milk and honey. There at Elam, uh, there are substantial uh, wells of water. There are these great uh, trees, palm trees growing, indicating uh, plentiful reserves of, of water. There they can live in the shade of the trees and have their thirst quenched with the water from the wells. God will be their shade when they arrive. God will quench their thirst. God will provide for them. And you see where that applies to us, don't you? That we are to keep our eyes set on the horizon of heaven. We're not there yet. We're meeting circumstances in our Monday to Saturday weeks which are showing that our hearts are very often not right with God. Very often we're in a thorn bush rather than a fruitful response to the heat situation. But by God's grace, we're learning. God is changing us. And God is reminding us by intimations of his goodness that we're heading towards a destination. We need to have the horizon of heaven in our sights. So let's ask God, as we apply this message to our own hearts, let's let's ask God to give us more and more an insight into the nature of our own hearts, when we, when we hit those situations that prompt our bad behaviour, whether it's tiredness or provocation or whatever it is, let's ask God to sweeten our hearts, to give us a sweetness of faith and obedience. That was their lesson. If you obey my decrees, if you trust me, I'll be the Lord your healer. Amen. May God bless to us his word.